Hello, this is Historically Thinking's Commonplace Book for the week of October 14th, 2018, an interesting week for historians both ancient and modern. There are many other dates and events that could be mentioned for this week, the Battle of Hastings in 1066, the beginning of Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party's Long March, the publication of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. But instead, in this commonplace book, I wish to note the births of two very different types of historians and one historian's vision. The first birth is that of Jean-Michel Foucault, born October 15, 1926, the very same day of the year as Frederick Nietzsche and P.G. Wodehouse, as well as our next historian. In his book entitled The Order of Things, in English, the subtitled An Archaeology of Human Sciences, Foucault ended up revolutionizing a number of humanistic fields. He expanded previous histories of psychiatry and clinical medicine into other modern disciplines such as economics, biology, philology. For many years now, Foucault wrote, historians have preferred to turn their attention to long periods as if, beneath the shifts and changes of political events, they were trying to reveal the stable, almost indestructible system of checks and balances, the irreversible processes, the constant readjustments, the underlying movements of accumulation and slow saturation, the great silent, motionless bases that traditional history has covered with a thick layer of events. Instead, Foucault turned his and the entire historical profession's attention to phenomena of rupture and discontinuity. Each period, Foucault argued, develops several determinations, several theologies, for one and the same science, as its present undergoes change. Thus, historical descriptions are necessarily ordered by the present state of knowledge. They increase with every transformation and never cease, in turn, to break with themselves. His ideas were of immense importance in driving history towards the cultural turn of the 1970s. Foucault was very active politically from the early 1970s onward, protesting on behalf of marginalized groups around the world, for prisoners, and advocating the Iranian Revolution of 1979. His influence in the United States was such that in 1983, the University of California at Berkeley persuaded him to be an annual lecturer. Foucault was an early victim of AIDS, dying in Paris on June 25, 1984. Also born on October 15th, Arthur M. Schlesinger, Jr. His father, Arthur Sr., was a historian of great eminence, Interestingly, Arthur would change his middle name from Bancroft to Meyer, just like Dad. Arthur Jr. was a chip off the father's block, perhaps improving on the block. He won the Pulitzer Prize at age 28 for his Age of Jackson, which also stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for 25 weeks and sold 90,000 copies in the first year of publication. Schlesinger Jr. went on to win the Parkman Prize for the Crisis of the Old Order, and yet, he also wanted to always be near the center of ongoing political and cultural events. For this reason, he accepted a position in John F. Kennedy's administration. His most recent biographer, Richard Aldiss, sums up this complicated man thus. Schlesinger, at different times, was a professor, an action intellectual, and a court historian. Winning the Pulitzer Prize at 28 was a precocious first act. What followed? more prize-winning books, a role as a major public figure, and his own thousand days in the White House proved that there were second acts in some American lives. Schlesinger was a multifaceted historian, writing in different styles and formats, whose crossover often defied categorization. 
While he took the academic world by storm as a young man, he worried about his serious work later in life. But he also wanted to get to the inside of the political world, which he was intent on bringing to life for a popular audience. Sometimes he paid a reputational price. His choice demeaned him in the eyes of many peers who believed that he had sold out. Yet he did become an instrumental eyewitness to history, and he did bring the past very much to life as one of the finest narrative historians America has ever produced. But whether as a man of thought or as a man of action, he retained the same idée fixe to put himself and his ideas at the vital center. And while it's not the birthday of English historian Edward Gibbon, October 15th is the anniversary of a much-contested vision to which he attributed the beginning of his great work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Whether Gibbon had such a moment, such a vision, is much contested. His memoirs, some would argue, were heavily edited. They were never prepared by him personally for publication. Others say that perhaps Gibbon lied. Gibbon is not such an important historian, anyway, etc., 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 but consider that there are very few historians and fewer histories whose origin stories are contested. That, in itself, makes the story of Gibbon's vision interesting. So here is Edward Gibbon remembering, or not, his first visit to Rome. I arrived in Rome in the beginning of October. My temper is not very susceptible of enthusiasm, and the enthusiasm which I do not feel I have ever scorned to affect. But, at the distance of twenty-five years, I can neither forget nor express the strong emotions which agitated my mind as I first approached and then entered the Eternal City. After a sleepless night, I trod with a lofty step the ruins of the Forum, each memorable spot where Romulus stood or Cicero spoke or Caesar fell, was at once present to my eye, and several days of intoxication were lost or enjoyed before I could descend to a cool and minute investigation. My guide was Mr. Byers, a Scotch antiquary of experience and taste. But in the daily labor of eighteen weeks, the powers of attention were sometimes fatigued, till I was myself qualified, in a last review, to select and study the capital works of ancient and modern art. The use of foreign travel has often been debated as a general question, but the conclusion must be finally applied to the character and circumstances of each individual. With the education of boys, where or how they may pass over some juvenile years with the least mischief to themselves or others, I have no concern. But after supposing the previous and indispensable requisites of age, judgment, a competent knowledge of men and books, and a freedom from domestic prejudices, I will briefly describe the qualifications which I deem most essential to a traveler. He should be endowed with an active, indefatigable vigor of mind and body, which can seize every mode of conveyance and support with a careless smile, every hardship of the road, the weather, or the inn. The benefits of foreign travel will correspond with the degrees of these qualifications. But in this sketch, those to whom I am known will not accuse me of framing my own panegyric. It was at Rome, on the 15th of October, 1764, as I sat musing amidst the ruins of the capital, while the barefooted friars were singing vespers in the Temple of Jupiter, 
that the idea of writing the decline and fall of the city first started to my mind. But my original plan was circumscribed to the decay of the city rather than of the empire. And though my reading and reflections began to point towards that object, some years elapsed and several avocations intervened before I was seriously engaged in the execution of that laborious work. That's from Edward Gibbon's Memoirs, and I'm Al Zambone. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Historically Thinking's weekly newsletter, Notanda, for a roundup of links and ideas mostly related to history. Until next time, right in the corner where you are. <laughs>